So tonight we're going to talk through really the basic idea of what is going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we'll be, for the most part, we'll be just in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have a Bible in front of you, um, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's right near the middle. Um, and so basically what that video was just showing is really the whole premise of Ecclesiastes and what's going on in here. Uh, this idea that everything that the world has to offer us, everything that you can do, everything that you can achieve in this world is meaningless, is what that video is trying to show you. And we'll, we'll talk about that more as we, we go through. Um, but first, I, I want to give you a little bit of a background of Ecclesiastes, what this book is, what it's about. Um, Ecclesiastes, the, the word itself, um, because you know a lot of books in the Bible, they're named by the people that write them and, or the people that are receiving the letter or whatever. Ecclesiastes means, uh, if you look up the original language, it means a leader who speaks before an assembly of people or, in other words, a, a, a teacher. And so this book is more than just a life story. As you read through it, there's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. It's more than just the story of someone's life. Um, it's actually an, an account of a lesson learned by the guy that's writing this, Okay. The guy that's writing it, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is a guy named Solomon. Uh, author of Ecclesiastes is a guy named Solomon. Solomon was uh, the, son, the second son of David. And so David and Goliath, most, pe most people are familiar with that story, right? So King David, uh, his wife, anybody know her name? Bathsheba, okay? King David, his wife Bathsheba, uh, maybe it's something you want to name your little girl one day, you know? Um, King David and his wife Bathsheba, they had, their second son was Solomon. And so if you know some about David, then David, basically a lot of David's life was, was spent fighting with, like, the, the, he was the king of Israel, right? And so fighting with a lot of other countries and other, other kingdoms, and, and there's lots and lots of fighting. Well then, when he was dying and then his son becomes king, Solomon becomes king, it's this time of peace. So all these things have already been conquered, um, and it's just this time of peace. There's no war going on, and, and then we get this time of Solomon. And Solomon was king for 40 years. Um, he was king for a 40-year time period. And it's important for you to know a few things about Solomon before we get into these things that he was writing about, okay? One, Solomon is the wisest man who has ever lived, Okay? The wisest man who has ever lived, who ever will live, according to Scripture. Where do I get that? First Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. I think we have it for you. Um, First Kings chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 12. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Or in other words, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. So God comes to Solomon in a dream one night and says, Ask whatever you want. This is God speaking, right? He knows as he's uh, hearing this that this is God speaking to him. And he says, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine somebody like, like that being a real thing? That somebody, that, that God himself asked you one day, what do you want and I'll give it to you. This is what he asked Solomon. He says, ask me what you want and I'll give you whatever it is. And so this is Solomon's response in verse 6. He says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of his heart toward you. 
And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made me, uh, made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And so this is what he asks in verse 9. So, David, so Solomon says, like, you've given me this kingdom, I get to be king, and there's so many people that I'm in charge of. And so this is what he asks from God. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Give me wisdom. Out of everything that Solomon could possibly ask for, he asked God for wisdom. Make me wise, because you have put me in charge of your people, and I want to lead them well. Give me wisdom. He says, for who is able to govern your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, and listen how God puts it. He gives him wisdom, a wise and discerning mind, and he says, So that no one, none like you, has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So he's saying... No one ever, no one ever before Solomon was as wise as him, no one ever after him will be as wise as him. And because our, our God is, is a gracious and a merciful and a good God, not only does he give Solomon what he asked for, but he gives him more than that. So not only is Solomon the wisest man who, have, who has ever lived, he's probably the richest man that has ever lived. Because if you go down and you read the next verse, 1 Kings 3.13, it says, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. So he's the wisest man who has ever lived, probably the richest man who has ever lived. Uh, and we'll go into more detail about that later. But um, the Bible talks about David being really handsome, his dad, and, and his mom Bathsheba being really beautiful. Um, and so you would assume... He's probably a pretty good-looking dude himself, right? So he's got looks. Uh, 1 Kings 11.3 says this about him. So he's, he's a handsome ladies' man as well. So he's not, he doesn't just, he's not just smart. He's like the wisest man that ever lived, rich, and he's also pretty good-looking. Uh, 1 Kings 11.3 says he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. So to say ladies' man is probably a little bit of an understatement, right? Uh, these, are, these are important as we go f take a few more steps in this direction, okay? It's important you know these things about Solomon, and here's why. What I, what I need you to know as we go into Ecclesiastes, as we go into what, what he's doing in this book, um, you need to know that he wasn't lacking in any earthly resources. Like, think about that. Even, even the richest family that you know here in Nacogdoches, they're lacking some things. There's, they're lacking some resources, for sure. Even the richest person that you can think of uh, is probably lacking some kind of resources in some way, shape, or form. But, so it's probably equivalent to thinking about, like, who's the richest man in the world right now? Where, so somebody like Bill Gates, Warren Barfield, guys like that, that you're talking, like, worth billion, Warren, Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren, uh, they're worth billions and billions of dollars, right? When you think of the word, I can't even fathom the number one billion. Like that's, in, 
that's even one million is just like an unfathomable amount to me. Uh, but he has what we need to know about Solomon. He's not lacking in any earthly resources. He could literally have and do whatever he wanted. Like at that time in life, he could literally have and do whatever he wanted because not only did he have the resources, but he had the authority to do whatever he wanted. He was the king. And so nobody was going to question him on whatever he did. So he had all the resources to do whatever he wanted and he had all the authority to do whatever he wanted. He didn't really have to answer to anybody. He has more wealth, he had more wealth, more power, and more fame than, than you or anyone else will ever come close to having. Ever. And on top of that, he was more educated and more knowledgeable, more wise than anyone will ever be. So the best of the best, right? The smartest, wisest, richest, most powerful person, you can, most famous person you could ever think of. And so Solomon does this experiment in Ecclesiastes. If you take the time to read through the 12 chapters, we're going to go through it really fast, just kind of an overview of this. But So Solomon did this experiment that is written out in Ecclesiastes to find out where true meaning and fulfillment actually come from. And so he, he goes out on this quest, if you will, to see if he can find meaning or value in life itself here on earth. Uh, and so we'll, we'll pick up in, in, in chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts this way. It says, I said in my heart, so this is the beginning of, of his experiment, right? I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this, was al this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And so he, he decides, like, at first, I'm going to test myself with every pleasure that I could possibly have. And then he begins to get a little bit more specific in these things. And so every, again, this, this guy has access to all these things, like the best of the best. So not only does he have access to whatever he wants, but he can get the best of the best of anything that he wants. And so he talks about wine specifically, that I'm going to cheer my body with wine. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to... I'm going to experiment to the fullest with that, right? The party scene. And, and what's different from Solomon than anybody else will ever be is that he, the whole time that he was experimenting these things, the whole time that he was trying to seek pleasure and find all these things, he was also still completely aware that this was an experiment and that he was still, he said, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. So he's not just so obliterated drunk and like, passed out and blacking out that he has no idea what's going on. He knows what's going on the whole time. He knows what's happening. He knows what he's trying to do. He's aware the whole time of what, what's trying to, what he's trying to make happen. And so he goes on, and so he, he starts there. Um, and then in verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of uh, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water, uh, from which to water the forest of growing trees. He made pools big enough that they could water the forest of growing trees. So you thought your pool was big and impressive, right? Not, not very compared to that. I bought, I, so you've, maybe, you bought, maybe you've bought a lot of things. Maybe you're like, I buy tons of stuff all the time. He said, I bought slaves, male and female slaves. And had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women. Come sing for me, you know? Taylor Swift, come to my house and sing. I'm not going to see you, right? Uh, and so he, he says, I, I've got all the best of the best of the best. And then he says, I got many, I, and many concubines, the, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great. Not only did he get all this stuff, he, it says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. This is talking about his fame. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew who he was. He has the most followers on Twitter, for sure. Right? Instagram, still the most followers. Yeah. Think about all the pools and stuff that he's posting. Everybody's like, man, they're liking that right and left, you know? He posted the best sunsets with hashtag no filter than anybody else. You know? Unbelievable. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Again, the whole time, he's still wise and he still knows what he's doing and what he's trying to what he's trying to seek and he says whatever this is just crazy to me whatever my eyes desired i did not keep from them i kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil then i considered all that my hands had done and the toil i had expended doing it and behold all was vanity and a striving after wind and so he he, he fills himself up with all this pleasure and then he then he says in verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom. So he's talking about his thoughts. Wisdom versus madness versus folly versus being really wise and following the rules versus being really dumb and just doing whatever I want, right? And in verse 14, he says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And he says, he says then I said in my heart, verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. So he's saying, even the foolish, the, so the foolish people that make stupid decisions, that are, that are just making stupid decisions, bad decisions, right and left, and I am the wisest person in the entire world that will ever, ever live, and I follow the rules and I obey those things, the same thing's going to happen to both of us. We're both going to die. So what's the point? He's saying that we're, we're both, ending, we both have the same End goal in life. It says, for, the, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will, be, have be long, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he's saying that even the wisest, most popular, most famous person in the world, you will forget them. They will be forgotten. Think about that, like when it comes to athletes and celebrities and things like that, right? Even the most loved, most known athlete, say Michael Jordan, who still tons of people know, and he hasn't played for a long time, right? Two things with him. One, at this point, I mean, I'll educate him, but at this point, my son has no idea who he is, right? But I'll, I'll make sure he knows. Um, but even if he does know, he'll probably have a different favorite player than that, right? So many people, I mean, have that kind of argument with that kind of thing of like, well, LeBron could beat him easy, you know? See, I see it on, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, because you never watched him play. And so point being that as famous as you get, as, as much of a celebrity as you are, as wise as you are, you will be forgotten. How many people know your grandparents' name? Raise your hand. Okay, keep your hand up if you know your great-grandparents' names, first and last. Keep them up if you know 
your great, great, great grandparents' names. Okay, add four greats. Great, 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 great grandparents. Do you know the other names at all? This is your own family, right? I mean, think about that. That's kind of a, it's a sad thought that even four little generations from you, people won't even know you, your whole family. Crazy. Right? And so the most famous people in the world, they will be forgotten. The ones who have done more for humanity, have invented something or found something out, whatever, they will be forgotten. You will not know them. Their name may be attached to some building or something, and then somebody's going to be like, who the heck is that? And why is there a building named after him, right? So that's what Solomon is saying here. Even if he's the wisest person in the world, people are going to forget him. So what's the point? And and you'll see, if you read even through the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, even in the first chapter, you'll see the same phrase over and over again, all is, vanity, all is vanity, some versions say all is meaningless or striving after the wind. And he goes on in verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all which I toiled. So all the things that I make, all the things that I create, all the money that I have, even if I am so successful, more successful than anybody else, I'm going to die one day, and that's going to be left to somebody else. Maybe my kids, but I don't even know if my kids will handle it the way that I handle it. But there's a good chance some of my stuff won't even be left to my kids, or after them, then it's left to somebody else. And so his whole point is, like, all these things that I work for, I'll be handed off to somebody else, and who knows if they're going to be wise or be a fool with it. So what's the point? Because I can work all this stuff for my own kids even, and they can be foolish, and they can lose it all. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So Solomon's conclusion to his experiment, this is only in the first, you know, the first two chapters here, the, the second chapter. He goes on for 12 chapters, and he talks about every aspect of life, and then he attaches worthlessness to it. He attaches, this is vanity, this is vanity, this is vanity, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, this is meaningless. So he goes over the course of 12 chapters, he talks about every aspect of life and then attaches worthlessness to it. So his conclusion of his experiment is that everything is meaningless in this world. Everything. Super encouraging night tonight. I'm glad you're here. That everything in life is meaningless. Again, think about this in as best we can. I, I want us to wrap our minds around just how much Solomon had at his disposal. Solomon far exceeded the pinnacles of success that any of us could ever achieve, and yet he still did not find satisfaction. He was always left wanting more. Our hearts are not content even even once we reach the pinnacle, even once we earn this thing that we think like, man, if I can just have that, or if I can just earn that, or if I can just get to that point in my life, once you get there, guess what happens? You're not content with that, and you need something else. We were talking about this as a group of leaders when we were praying before we started. And somebody was talking about, like, man, one of the things in my mind is if I can just be done with school, if I can just be done with college, and once I get to that point, then I'll be a lot better. 
and then you talk to the person who just graduated college last year, and guess what? Whole new world of problems, right? And so we always, that's how we are as human beings. We, 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 we want more, and then when we get what we actually wanted for and that we worked for, when you get there, you're still left not satisfied with that. This is what Solomon is talking about. Our hearts are not content even once we reach the pinnacle, this thing that we wanted more than anything else. And there's this endless cycle, like being stuck on a treadmill. I hate running on a treadmill because you go nowhere, literally, right? And you're just over and over and over and over and over, going nowhere. That, this, this example that he keeps using throughout all of Ecclesiastes is striving after the wind. Think about chasing after the wind. What happens? What happens? You run after the wind, and you're going to look like an idiot for one. You're just like running around like, I'm going to get it. Chase it. You, if I did that all day long, you'd be like, what is this problem? This dude's weird, you know? And I'm like, I'm just chasing after the wind. It's awesome. What do you get for doing that? Nothing. This is what he's saying over and over throughout Ecclesiastes. It's like chasing after the wind. Sure, you're really busy, and you're moving around a lot. But even when you get to a point where you think, oh, I oh, oh, got it, you're, you're achieving nothing. Anything you could do, anything. So you think about your wildest dreams in life and what you want to achieve, right? Everybody has specific things that are wrapped up in specific things that you like and that specific things that you love. And if I could have this, if this could be my job in life, I would want it to be this. If the wildest dream that you have, if I could do this professionally and get paid for, if I could be a celebrity in this way, like think about that, right? Anything that you could do, anything that you could pursue and try to find meaning and fulfillment from, Solomon has done. This is the point of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. This is why I think it is here in Scripture for us to read. Is that this guy has done it. He's been to the pinnacle, to the highest places in every aspect. He's done it, and he has done it bigger and better than you ever could. He's done it bigger and better than I ever could. He's done it bitter, bigger and better than anybody ever could. He throws the biggest parties ever seen. Like, when you read about this in Scripture, it's crazy. Like, he makes Gatsby parties look like little preschool parties, you know? And, and, and he brings in all, like, so he, First Kings um, talks a lot about this, okay? Uh, and he brings in all, like, the best comedians in the world, all the best, like we read in, in some in verse, in chapter 2 here. He brings in all the best singers, all these best entertainers in the world that you could possibly think of. So any of your favorite entertainers in the world, he could bring them all to his house. And he would have them over. And then he would have uh, all this food for them. He'd invite all kinds of people and he hosts them with the best food, the best barrels and barrels and barrels and barrels of wine. And in these palaces decorated by the best party planners. And they were not just one night deals either. These weren't just one night parties that, that Solomon threw. It was seven days a week for multiple weeks in a row that they would just party. His provisions for one day, so this is one day of his partying, right? First Kings 4, this isn't just made up. This is from First Kings 4, 22, 23. It says his provisions for one day for one of these parties was 30 cores, that's 220 liters of flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 oxen, 20 cattle, a hundred sheep, just think about how much meat that is already, 
uh, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. And when you look it up and when you look up all the things that it lists and all this sort of stuff and somebody does all the calculations with like modern day measurements and all those things, right? To save time for all that, here's, what, here's basically what it's saying is that these parties for that one day, it provided enough between, for between 15 to 20,000 people to eat and drink whatever they wanted. 15 to 20,000 people. So that's a, that's a big list of people. So those little field parties or backyard barbecues that you've been to that have like a couple kegs in them, hopefully you haven't been to those. Um, If so, if you just shook your head and I saw it, I know what you're up to. Um, Those are lame compared to this, you know? Like these are the biggest parties you could ever think of. And he spent time thinking like, I'm going to try to get meaning out of this. And then after partying, he decided to be more constructive literally and he built a bunch of things. His house, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 7, in the very part of 1 Kings chapter 7, it says it took him 13 years to build his house. It's not because he was really slow. It's because it was that big. 13 years to build his house, just the house that he lives in. Then scripture also says that he built houses for all of his wives. How many wives did I say he had? 700. That's impressive alone. He built houses for all of his wives. And, and what it talks about in here, it says that he didn't just plant gardens. Like, you know, some people get a lot of joy out of gardening because it, like, brings some life and, and things like that. He planted forests. Right? Literally. Like, that's not an exaggeration at all. I'm not just saying that for effect. He literally planted forests. And he had pools big enough, pools of water big enough to irrigate and provide water for those forests to grow. And when you read through this, when you read through Ecclesiastes, you see that he, like, he took it really easy for a long time, like sleeping in, partying, and then sleeping in until 11. And then he spent, since he didn't find all the meeting or anything out of that, and he said that was vanity. And then he decided to work really hard, get up really early, work really hard all day, and try to build a bunch of things, build a bunch of monuments, build a bunch of gardens or a bunch of forests, things like that. That still didn't find, he didn't find any meaning in that. He was uninhibited sex, in, in sex, sexually, sexuality. He could have, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He made Hugh Hefner look like an amateur, right? So he did everything like that. He was more famous than anyone you could possibly think of. He was smarter, more wise than anyone. And again, all throughout this, his wisdom remained with him. And so even when he was achieving the most extreme levels of intelligence, success, money, power, sex, fame... It was never enough, and it was all meaningless. That's what he got out of it. Scripture is meant for us for a reason, right? The reason for Ecclesiastes is for, for, for you to get out of your head that you can think, I can achieve so much in fill in the blank, money, power, sex, whatever. I can achieve such a high level of this thing that it will provide me with everything that I want, everything that I need, and I will be completely fulfilled because I reached this level in this area. Because this guy who did that and who actually made that happen, when he did that, he found that everything was meaningless and none of it had really any value to him. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, this is, what, this is his conclusion. The end of the matter, all has been heard Here's what he gets out of all this. Fear God and keep his commandments. So what Solomon gets out of all of this 
is that fulfillment and meaning in life are only found in Jesus Christ, are only found in God himself. Fulfillment and meaning in life are only found in, in God himself. It, and here's, here's the thing that's hard. Well, here, let me share these two verses first. John 6, 35. So not only is Solomon saying that meaning in life is only found through God, through Jesus Christ himself, John 6.35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not just talking about eating and drinking. Sure, on that level, he's talking on every level. That if you know Christ and you follow him and you live for him, you will not be lacking in anything that you need. You will be fulfilled completely, is what that verse is saying. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So here's why those are, are important. Again, from Ecclesiastes, the lesson of Ecclesiastes is no matter what you pursue, per, pursue in this world outside of Christ, it's going to be meaningless. And it's going to not be enough. Those two things. It's going to not be enough for you and it's going to be meaningless. Here's why this matters. Because I know that. But in my heart, I still run to things. I was talking about this with, with the leaders, with Jamal today. Uh, this is something that Terrell says all the time, that there's a huge difference between uh, confessional belief and functional belief. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I can confess things, I can say things with my mouth, right, that I believe. And then you can look at my life and see if I actually believe those things. That's functional belief, like looking at my life and seeing if I actually apply that to my life. Um, Confessional belief is just saying something, right? And so I'll, I'll give you two examples of that. I, don't, I guess my mind's always on pizza on Wednesday nights. Um, I can say I love Domino's pizza, but if, I, if you never see me eat it, doesn't really seem, and I never actually eat it, there's not really much of a functional belief there. Uh, it's just a confessional one that I say, right? So that's a really trivial example. Uh, let me give you another one. Um, I mean, it's the same thing with our relationship with Christ, right? I can say I believe that, that God is in control of my life. I, I can say that. I can confess that I believe that God is in control of my life. But if all you see me do is worry and have a lot of anxiety about things going on in my life, it's not really much of a functional belief in my life. Does that make sense? Those are two very different things. And so you can say you believe that God is the most satisfying thing in all the world, and you can say that you believe that God is the only way that I will actually be fulfilled, and you can still very functionally in your life believe that things will satisfy you. And so if I look at your life, are you constantly running after things to fulfill you, or, if, or are you running after Christ to fulfill you? Because I, I see this happen in my, my own life. If you know, some of you know, like last week I went uh, on a cruise with my wife. Just the two of us, two of our friends, and no kids. So it was like, it's awesome. It's a week of like, I felt like Solomon for a week, I feel like. I was only, I mean, I didn't have like a bunch of wives or anything. I just had one wife. Um, but so like, this is us on a cruise ship, right? So it's like a, a floating, hey, don't whistle at my wife. It's disrespectful. I mean, she is beautiful. Um, so that's like, on the cruise ship, there's like all these things, all this food, all the things I could ever want food-wise. I got to dress up and go to dinner with my wife every night. Um, 
that was awesome. Let me show you a little bit more so you get an idea and, and so you could also be jealous. I, in the middle of the ocean, could go climbing on a climbing wall if I want to, and so I did, you know? I could climb up that as much as, as there wasn't a very long line either, so I could just like do whatever I wanted there. Uh, we were literally in a jungle. That's us in a jungle. That's not fake. That's real. And we went zip lining, and then we went down into a cave and, and went tubing in a cave where it was so dark that we had to have headlights. And listen to this. Not only did I go tubing in the cave, I just had to sit in the tube, and we held on to, like, there was a group of eight of us. We just held on to everybody's tubes, and then our guide pulled us through there. We didn't have to do any work. I just got to sit, sit in there. And then it just, like, told us all these facts about this cave, right? It was awesome. Uh, I had matching shirts with my wife. It was awesome. Uh, this is where I spent a whole day. Like, that's not a postcard. That's real life, and that's me doing a flip off of that thing right there. Uh, and my American flag shorts, because we're Go America still. Uh, but, like, that's a real place that I got to spend a whole day last week. I was just there. It's like paradise. And we just got to sit on a beach and hang out and then get back on a boat and then eat all this, kind, all this food. Like, literally, I, kid, I mean, I could go on for an hour about this. I can't, though. We don't have enough time. I had at least two appetizers every night for dinner followed by at least two entrees, if not three entrees, and then at least two or three desserts every night. I gained 10 pounds easy. But I had, like, my, my point in all of that is that when I was on this cruise even, there was part of me that was like, like I wanted more, even after getting so much excess of all this stuff, even food. I was telling leaders and they laughed at me that one night I had so much food, like, and I, and I wanted to try other things on the menu, but I was so full that I couldn't even have any more. And that's frustrating to me. Uh, but that's the kind of life that I just lived for a week long. And it, you know what? That's not enough because then I want another week of that. Or I want it to be two weeks next time. Or I want, like, it's never enough if it's just those things, right? That's one thing that, that, that I got over and over in my mind last week was like, when I'm just chasing after these things, these things are never enough. But here, here's the thing that's cool. Even though that seems like a really depressing like, book to go through, Ecclesiastes, and he talks about everything being meaningless, everything is meaningless apart from Christ. But here, here's the cool thing that happens. When, when you find your meaning and your fulfillment in Christ, once you find it in him, it gives meaning to everything else. So hear that again. Once you find your meaning and your fulfillment in Christ himself, and you believe that, and it's a functional belief, that your meaning, your purpose, your fulfillment is in him, then it gives meaning to everything else in your life. Even these last few days of school, they're like, oh, really, do we have to go this week? Right? This next week of school, some of you two more weeks, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Hey, I don't ever have any more weeks of school, so, you know. Uh... But even those things, right, even the things that you hate, even the things that are frustrating, hear this, know this, believe this, they have meaning in Christ. Once our meaning and fulfillment is found in him, it brings meaning and, and fulfillment to everything else. So that's why the, the 1 Corinthians 10.31 is true. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because when I chase after the creator, instead of just his creation, 
then I get meaning and I get fulfillment. When you just chase after the things that he created, it does not bring you meaning, it does not bring you fulfillment. But when you chase after him, the one who actually created it, then everything that you do, all these things, like my experience last week was so good on on certain levels because my joy didn't just end on those things. When I saw that place that that you just saw a picture of, my mind also went to this, I know the God that created that. When I got to swim with sea turtles and they, got, they popped up out of the water and they took a breath and they were like literally this, this close to me and it was like as big as me, I got to think like, man, I get to serve and, and love and follow the God who created this. And that brings meaning to things. That brings meaning to everything in my life. And so as we run into this summer, when you have a lot more freedom and you get to make a lot more choices, to do what you want to do on your time, our tendency is to run to, to things to fulfill us. That's our tendency. My encouragement, my, my, my hope is that you would run towards the creator himself instead of the things that he created because that's where you find fulfillment, that's where you find meaning.